Oh, hello. I'm Bill Murray. On the set of Moonrise Kingdom, a new film by Wes Anderson. Who's in it? Frances McDormand. She's a police officer in Fargo. Edward Norton. He does a lot of psycho work. He's playing against type. Bruce Willis playing a policeman. Typecast, I guess. Jason Schwartzman's in the film. Oh, Tilda Swinton's in this one, too. She's tall. She's Scottish. She's pretty. She can do whatever she likes. And here I am, living La Vida Loca. Rated PG-13. Now playing... Welcome, everyone, to Whose Filmography Is It Anyway, where we are working our way through Wes Anderson's filmography. Today, we are exploring Moonrise Kingdom, Wes Anderson's camp, uh, I don't know, I guess it's a dramedy. Here with me, as always, is my friend and co-host, Josh Page. Charmed, I'm sure, Stephen. Thank you for that lovely introduction. <laughs> You'll find John. Charmed, I'm sure. Charmed, I'm sure. Charmed, yes, I'm thank sure. you. Thank you, Steve, for the lovely introduction. Yes, we're here at uh, Who's Film. We're here. We're narrowing, somehow narrowing down our journey of Wes Anderson films down to the end. We are What's ga- this? We are- what did you order? <laughs> Was it Moonrise Kingdom? Oh man, Sorry. this is fabulous! It's fabulous. For, <laughs> for anyone who has not watched "Oh Hello" or uh, "Too Much Tuna," on uh, you can go to the YouTube and Missing it's out. pretty, it's pretty Missing great. Out. It is, out. It's, it's fabulous. It's fabulous. Um, yes, we are here. This is Moonrise Kingdom. We're on the other side of the hill of the uh, Moonrise Kingdom itself. This- yeah, this is definitely. Um, I know, fantastic, Mr. Fox. We noted was really like the turning point but i think this was like an even bigger turning point because fantastic mr fox in my summation got him a more of it built up his following but this is when people really took notice of him mainstream and otherwise so i know we sound like a broken record because we're saying the, the same kind of things but i think it's imperative to note that as we go along it truly is uh impressive to see how he's as i've said in the, said in the first episode how he's kind of outdoing himself uh production wise and how it, it not just that but how it seems to be working with for uh hold for darjeeling limited which seemed to fly under the radar um i mean his production expanded but like a lot of people didn't talk about but like in terms of like just making his films bigger um and expanding his uh his filmmaking uh, whatever qualities uh, he really just yeah it's like almost like how can I just do bigger and better and this he seems to just be doing it I uh, I don't mean to denigrate his earlier movies by any stretch because I love them but I feel like this is his most um, vi- or this starts his most vibrant movies uh, you know between this and uh, Grand Budapest Grand Budapest I feel like they're just very um, bright and the like, color schemes color yeah um, just in your face because darjeeling had lots of colors but it still kind of felt very muted because it was in india so it felt like it was still limited felt, you know it was uh, blue and brown <laughs> no I, pun intended yeah I, I feel like the color scheme was just very blue brown with like yellow thrown in you feel like his outfits that he picked here i noticed like of the costumes especially because i'm trying to keep more of a keen eye this round um is almost reminiscent of 
what he teased in like Royal Tenenbaums with like um, Ben Stiller in the tracksuits. It's like he's really trying to make colors pop yeah. in ways that he really hasn't. So, um, well, there is a clear similarity between this and Royal Tenenbaums with the yellow tents. There was actually an interview with uh, <laughs> Wes Anderson where he noted like he didn't want to copy himself from Royal Tenenbaums, but when he was at confronted about, okay, you don't want a yellow tent in this movie, what color tent do you want? Yeah, yeah. He literally couldn't come up with another answer because yeah. he was like, I just like yellow tents. <laughs> That's it. I mean, it's it works, you know? It stands out for a reason, you know? It works. Um, yeah. I almost feel like to a degree, I mean, you can make this argument about probably almost all of his movies, but I feel like this and Royal Tenenbaums could be in the, have a shared universe. Like, they could exist together well i could see that fun facts that kid is royal no <laughs> that would be great though that would be something would be <laughs> edward norton's character is royal tenenbaum <laughs> that's really wild this is it's just secretly a prequel wow what a twist lionel wow. little lionel that little child that was actually riley from little, royal tenenbaums little little lionel little absolutely lionel. Um, so tell me, Josh, when was the first time you watched this movie? Well, Stephen, um, as, as other, as what happened to me with other Wes Anderson films, I <laughs> saw this film when I was in college and I was going through a streak of Wes Anderson films, uh, chronologically. So you were in college streaking? I went streaking in college. Josh not- the Tank here. This is really, it was really something. Yes, I went streaking across my college campus. Uh, drank Let's a lot of the tank. I drank a lot of cheap beer. I went streaking and I went back to my dorm and I, I watched Moonrise Kingdom. That's exactly how it happened. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, it was quite a journey, you know, discovering these films as a young adult, no longer an adolescent, but an adult. Well, this movie is on that precipice, isn't it? Like, sorry. That's, you know, it's a the cross between young adult and adult, you know? Uh, it's the, yeah, it's the epitome of, uh, you know, coming of age. It's the kids growing up and having their adult realizations. But um, the adults also have their own, uh, the adult characters also have their own persona. And it's very, it's very funny because it's, there's a clear division between what is a child and what is an adult in these movies in the way um, they behave. In a sense. I don't know. I feel like the kids are very adult in this movie. Well, I think like I said in the first episode is that Wes Anderson's tropes seem to be featuring children that act like adults and adults that act like children. Yeah. Um, but like, it's just the way, I don't know, the way that the, the older characters kind of have to hold it. They try and hold it together, but they're all like kind of in a panicky mode, but they're all like trying to keep their composure because they're supposed to be grownups. And meanwhile, the children are off like doing not always dangerous things. So, I mean, especially the two leads, they go run off on their own, but it's kind of like they're very carefree and they're very mature about uh, certain things. Um, It's just, I'm going to hold off because you know, you're hitting close to my final thoughts right now. So, Oh no, it's all good. We 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 tend to do this. We tend to get close to final thoughts. We get overzealous here. Um, we always do, but yes, please. For my first time watching this movie, I'll be honest, I don't really remember it, so I don't really have much of a story. Instead, I'll tell a story about uh, watching well, it at a different time. So, my family all 
was like bored. It was my father and my mother, a bunch of my siblings, not all of them, two of them were playing video games. It was my sister and one of my brothers. Um, And we were all just bored and they look at me and they're like, what movie should we watch, Steven? I'm like, I don't fucking know. I don't know what's on these streaming services. So they throw me the remote and I'm just like sifting through stuff. And I'm like, do you guys want to watch? Have you ever seen Moonrise Kingdom? They're like, no, what's that? I'm like, well, you're about to find out. (laughs) Uh, Needless to say, they liked it, but the uh, beach scene was very uncomfortable for my parents to watch with their children. I'm sure it was. (laughs) My mother, I believe, commented going, what the fuck are you showing me, Steven? It's a great choice on your part. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you could, we'll we'll get there when we get there, but if you can save for that scene, it's really, you know, it's, it's manageable. Yeah, that scene does get a lot of debate. That was in a lot of reviews, that debate. I, uh, but, yeah. yeah, I'll save my thoughts, my, my actual thoughts, and when we get, get when we cover it, but it's, um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a good choice in your part. That's the part where you're like, hey, I'm going to get a drink of water. Does anyone want the water, you know, and then you Does just... Does anyone want anything? I'm going to be gone for at least five, ten minutes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so conveniently. Honestly, what she commented on wasn't even the, um, wasn't even the uh, sex scene. It was, or alleged sex scene. You know? the, sexu- the sexual scene. Yeah. The, uh, I guess, not the dancing scene. But she commented immediately when uh, the, the earring was going into uh, Susie's ear. Because that's pretty disgusting. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so you ready to get into the production, post-production, Always. pre-production, Always. all that fun jazz. Let's, let's do it. Let's do it to it. Let's do so it let's to start it. with uh, some influences on this movie, personal and otherwise. So apparently Wes was a scout for a little bit, which is where, I guess, he found some fascination with the system at hand. Uh, he was Wes was also in a play about Noah's Ark as a child, which is where he garnered that idea. And Wes's mom, Eleanor, as we've discussed her before, she actually used a bullhorn in her house to get her children's attention. So that's where he got that idea too. I was gonna say, yeah, the idea came from co-writer Roman Coppola's childhood, as his mother Eleanor used a bullhorn in a similar fashion. It's pretty funny. <laughs> um, some in uh, influences uh he got from sam rockwell paintings which of course that makes sense yeah uh and film references medley a little romance and 400 blows which i never really i'm not a huge fan of that one i haven't seen Uh, the other two what 400 blows i've seen 400 blows i haven't seen medley and a little romance neither have i we're not as well versed as we should be, Stephen. We should yeah. watch them right now. We should change this whole podcast right now. Yeah, four hundred blows though is, I don't know, it's triple. It's you this is watch. we make a lot of controversial. We've made controversial comments on this podcast in terms of film uh, expectations, in terms of us being fans of the Last Jedi or whatever. You know, not being fans of. Um, Are you a fan of the four hundred blows? No, I actually think it's incredibly overrated. I. I think it's an important movie to watch. I just don't think that it is... For its time and for its country, it's fine. 
it says what it does what it needs to do in being radical and transformative but i i watched it in film classes i've seen it since and it really feels like 400 blows to the chest just <laughs> just like someone's taken just rounds at me just it, just maybe with rubber bit, bullets you know but it's a bit it's a bit pretentious yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, again important but anyway um yeah we'll move past it before but uh, the influence the kills us. oh yeah i can hear it now i can just hear the tweets but the influences i can see the influence in certain ways you know with the yeah the children and the pretentiousness of so Wes Anderson had been working on the script for about a year after Darjeeling and had about 15 pages. Uh, he then went to Roman Coppola to help him with the script because he just couldn't crack it. And they knocked it out within a month. Impressive. Crazy. Uh, he got the ability to make this movie, uh, but at a more reduced budget than he originally wanted because obviously his movies don't um how do i say this nicely they don't bring in the cash like some other movies like christopher nolan's movies do sure so he was awarded <clears throat> after fantastic mr fox made money back and so a little sum extra he was able to get money for this movie at a 16 million dollar budget and the movie made 68.3 million dollars and that's uh, that's good, but I feel like this movie took on a whole another life on uh, Netflix and whatever streaming services. I think the movie, I not unlike some of his other movies, but certainly this one is. I feel like it got a cult following after the fact. It um, I remember when I remember when it came out, um, and I remember you know I had hipster film friends who were like, "We're going to see Moonrise Kingdom," and I obviously hadn't seen it when came out and then i remember years later just peep it just slowly people be like oh moonrise kingdom is one of my favorite movies and like oh i love moonrise kingdom like oh it's a great movie and it's like i just felt like it slowly gained its own community yeah just, just a after the fact i feel like like we were saying this is his first like mainstream movie it made 68 million dollars which means that it definitely crossed out of the cult realm into um the mainstream sort of but sure when i say it went mainstream i feel like this movie did when it came to netflix a mainstream audience found it and fell in love with it and sure. by the time we get to grand budapest hotel wes is in the mainstream because not to spoil next week but that movie made i think 140 million dollars so yeah. <clears throat> obviously it's a big leap forward so uh six artists were commissioned to create jackets covers a uh, jacket covers for the books that I uh, Susie read. Notable, notable each, notebooks. <laughs> yeah. No, they were the books uh, she stole from the library. Oh, those books. Yeah. So six artists came in to like create the jacket covers for those books because there were six different books and he had to have a different cover for each of them. Of course, yeah. And of course, Wes Anderson wrote the passages, like passages in each of them. There's a quote it's weird because you'd think that you could make a fake island and a ma and map it and it would be a simple enough matter but to make it feel like a real thing it just always takes a lot of attention shocking yeah. as that may be i mean he also puts so much attention to detail and everything he does that i feel like that's the kind of thing that would drive him insane you know it's like the amount of tiny detail he puts into 
the production value of like especially like i think of like the overhead shots anytime someone's a character is using their hands to like stitch something together or put or glue something on it it's like you see this detail i feel like that's how he treats his movies you know he's just trying to stitch details together so i feel like even trying to create a fictional map of an island of whatever i just i feel like even that would be daunting for him given how much he loves to just flourish every single uh area of yeah of, of well, everything to add on to that a, a lot of people went in were brought in for making water colorings, needle points, and other props. Like, literally everything is just handmade. He it shows. That shit. It shows. I mean, the production, again, the production value on this is, like, it's not even that it's good or it's great. Like, it's, like, it's beyond that. It's just, like, it's so, it just, none of it feels... Um, authentic. Yeah. It just, it literally just feels like it's completely... Fresh. It, yeah. You're completely watching the the era of whatever it is he's presenting, you know? It feels homely because it's all literally made at home. Yeah. Um, so for location scouting, he used Google Maps, which is <laughs> pretty funny. That's great. Uh, it was shot on islands in and around Rhode Island. Okay. Which, yeah. I wouldn't have guessed, but I mean, the movie's also very secluded. Yeah. It'd be hard for me to guess anywhere that it was filmed, but... Uh, Wes said that he wanted to make a romance between two 12-year-olds that's too great for everyone to control. He had the idea, did the idea actually stemmed from a girl who loved to read and how, what kind of story would that girl be reading? Like he wanted to create a story that Susie would read. That's cool. It's Uh, very meta. (laughs) and And to go off on that, I don't know where he said this quote, but he said, uh, he wanted the film's connection to feel like the first time he fell in love. And he said, and I'm commenting on that. He said, what I wanted to do is recreate the feeling of, of that memory uh, of falling in love. The memory is kind of like a fantasy. I think I, that I would have had at that age when you're 11 or 12, you can get so swept up in a book that you start to believe that the fantasy is reality. I think when you have a giant crush, when you're in the fifth grade, it becomes your whole world. It's like being underwater. Everything is different. And I think that that whole feeling goes off what you just said in terms of him taking what is a very intimate but very small kind of thing because it's a childhood crush really and he's expanding it to make it their whole world he's really just and it's just this whole like you said well like Wes said (coughs) and you quoted him that's it it is a whole world to the kids you know yeah when you have a crush like that that's everything yeah 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 and he really he, he really captures it I mean it's just it almost in a sense like and I get saved some of this for final thoughts, but it's almost like he um, dramatizes it in the sense that, like, in the way that adults would watch a, a, a romantic drama is the way that the children treat their romance because to them it, it's, it's an end-all, be-all kind of situation, you know? Yeah, I absolutely. <laughs> uh, just a funny anecdote. Wes Anderson found it funny that the kids literally had to observe a typewriter like it was like this crazy <laughs> like a four, like a foreign object yeah they literally had no idea how to work it or what it was it's just pretty funny that's pretty amazing funny. top note on imdb trivia is that the dance scene on the beach was saved for the very end of filming so that the two young leads would be comfortable around each other and uh it was done on a closed set so it was just the two of them and it was wes and the camera and the cameraman I guess it's a way of capturing the the, the genuine uh, uh, the genuine connection rather than trying to have it forced early on. But 
Yeah, and I guess that <clears throat> works best because uh, those scenes get very intimate, like we were discussing. Right, and it's hard um, to do with children, as we've said in the past. But yeah, well, you're gonna freak them out if you know. You got a whole camera crew and they just met a couple of days ago and it's like, all right, now you have to make out and fill each other up. <laughs> yeah, right. And you have to literally grab her boob and she has to comment on how he's hard. And, yeah. uh, so finally, we'll get to the Oscars because as I said last week, this is it. This is like the string of Oscars. Every movie yeah. from uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox on gets nominated for at least something. And this only got one nomination for Best Original Screenplay. It lost to... Uh, Quentin Tarantino for Django Unchained. Damn. Also nominated was Michael Haneke for Amour, John Gatnitz for Flight, and uh, Mark Bowell for Zero Dark Thirty. Okay, that's a pretty good year, I guess. Um, In hindsight, I almost feel like, uh, I hate to love Django, but I almost feel like this should have won the screenplay out of those. But then again, I don't know. I mean, all those movies are fine. All those movies are great, you know. It's I don't know. All right. <clears throat> Ready? The film opens inside the bright red Bishop household. I'm sorry. I just keep thinking of Alec Baldwin every week. He's just ruined it for me. He should be their narrator every time. Every time. 60% of the time it works. Every, every time. time. The film opens inside the bright red Bishop household. It's not that much different. <clears throat> the film opens inside the bright red Bishop household. It is a rainy day and the family members are inside entertaining themselves with mundane. Walter Bishop, Bill Murray, is reading and drinking throughout the house. Laura Bishop, Frances McDormand, is washing her hair and filing her nails. Three boys are listening to a record player, playing jacks and running around with model airplanes. All the while, Susie Cara Hayward is looking through her binoculars out into the field. The introduction to these characters comes through impressive dolly and panning shots that enforce just how separated the family is even in the same home yeah that this is very yeah, true it was amazing those dolly shots i just wanted to make a note of that yeah it, i feel like i don't i can't I, I haven't been taking notes on like the differences but i feel like that's maybe the first time he's ever done a shot like quite like that because it almost looks like it's and it almost looks like it's fake it's almost like it's, it's incredible I don't, I don't know i don't think it's the first time he did that but it's just very effective like i was saying you know it's like a great way to show how separated, you know, they're in the same house, yet like Francis McDermott and uh, Bill Murray are literally just a wall apart. They're like touching it. the same wall, but they're in um, different rooms. But a huge, I mean, he does this in a lot of his films, but a huge theme of this movie is separation. It's oh, feeling, 100%. it's feeling like people are in their own world. They're in their own room. They're in their own area, you know? Well, not just that, but, it's always about families needing to come back together. Right. So, so but, uh, he's uh, way he's way more direct with his metaphor in the in the terms of the walls and the, you know what yeah, I mean the, the separations. The yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like Susie literally has her eyes somewhere else. She's wearing her binoculars. It's very it's a straightforward metaphor, but it's one that works because this whole it's a congruent theme in the whole movie. Yeah. I also made a note. That uh, I feel like Susie is literally Margot Tenenbaum. I don't know. They just seem very similar to me. That's a very interesting comparison because both girls uh, have, they have um, the mute emotion. They both have what, what's her name in Thoroughbreds has. It's like they can't feel. It's like they have a wall up. You know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. uh, 
that's a very astute observation because I think a lot of West Anderson's women, they're strong, but they like hide behind these barriers. Like they're completely void of of lots of emotion. Not all of them are like that, but I think a, a, the. I think he subverts his women, his female <clears throat> characters, because, you know, a lot of movies and TV shows tell you how a woman should act. And, but like in the Darjeeling, for example, you know, the mother, you know, for years you are told this is how a mother should act. But at the Absolutely. end of their encounter, you find out that she left the very next right. day. Right, right, She right. couldn't handle the emotion of her family. Mm. And Margot and Susie are kind of the same way. They put, uh, not, not, they put they're the, different than that, but they put up a wall of just apathy, I guess. Absolutely. It's very, it's, it's, it's an interesting comparison because I could totally see it. I could totally see this, this being the same character. Like you said, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a Royal Ten of Moms prequel. <laughs> but I digress. The rain subsides and Susie goes outside to the mailbox. She finds a letter and puts it inside her shoebox labeled private. The narrator, Bob Balaban, Bob Blah Blah. Bob Blah Blah. Now, when you said private, I was thinking of the It's Always Sunny clip where uh, they go to the bar. Uh, Charlie and uh, Dennis go to the bar, the Korean bar. He points oh, to the door. Yeah. He's like, yo, what's the door saying pirate for? Do you think they have a pirate here? <laughs> they have a pirate. I hope you've seen out, outtakes of that scene. I it's have, hilarious. I see the door marked private. I see the door marked private. <sighs> Jesus Christ. Anyway, the narrator. <laughs> the narrator, Bob Alaman, in reversed Zisu outfit, red jacket, blue hat, which I I can't, I, I just, I see it every time and I do love it because it, fe- it literally feels like a, it's meta. It feels like a character from Life Aquatic is narrating this. Yeah, but he, it was, it's, it's inverted a, costume because like it's a red it's jacket same, and a it's blue the hat. Same getup. It's just yeah, exactly. Um, I see it every time and I love it because it reminds me that this universe is connected. I'll find the connections one day, but not tonight. Um, the narrator, Bob Balaban, in a reverse Zisu outfit, red jacket, blue hat, comes into set up the setting and impending storm. This is the island of New Penzance. 16 miles long, forested with old growth pine and maple, crisscrossed by shallow tidal creeks, Chickchaw territory. There are no paved roads, but here comes Jed with the mail. But instead, many miles of intersecting footpaths and dirt trails, and a ferry that runs twice daily from Stone Cove. The year is 1965. We are on the far edge of Black Beacon Sound, famous for the ferocious and well-documented storm which will strike from the east on the 5th of September in three days' time. Lazy Eyes, Charlie Kilgore, Kilgore blows his trumpet to wake up everyone in the camp, Camp Ivanhoe. Much like Ash in Fantastic Mr. Fox, after Dunn blowing the trumpet, Lazy Eye spits, Scoutmaster Ward, Edward Norton, emerges from his tent, smoking a cigarette. Gadge, Chandler Franz, hands Ward his freshly ironed bandana, because you got to get that ironed. You know, you know how bandanas wrinkle. Ward's daily camper inspection can begin. 
the latrine is still functioning. Roosevelt's Samsung David Fitzpatrick Roosevelt's lanyard skills have not improved. Uh, Scott's Gabriel Rush has built a treehouse that is too high. It's literally just it's... A, a house on top of a <laughs> pole. It's uh, so high up. <laughs> uh, Pangol, Adres, Shay, and Izod, LJ Foley have built 16 and a half rockets, but they need more. Redford, which is a young Lucas Hedges. This is the now, guy I was like, holy shit, you're in this movie. So I don't know if we have it on record from last week. If not, we can scratch all of those conversations. But you said like, oh, someone's in this movie I didn't realize. And as soon as I was watching, I was like, oh, shit. I was like, I know this dude. Like, he totally became famous, like, as a young adult. And here he's a literal child. <laughs> yeah. I was, when I watched the movie, my jaw dropped. I was like, holy shit. Lucas well, Hedges is in this movie? It's funny because he's still making a name for himself. But he has spent the last few years trying to be in everything. And power, more power to him. He's a good actor. Um, but, yeah, he from 20, I don't know, I guess Manchester was when I first – yeah, well, he, he got nominated for an Oscar for that. That was right. twenty. That was twenty. No, no, you're we right. Twenty sixteen. Twenty seventeen. Twenty sixteen. Seventeen. Because we were working at Postworks when that would happen. No, or I was you, working you, at Postworks. That so, was twenty sixteen. Because ever since then, he crops up in movies all the time. So it's funny to see him very frequently these last few years, and then to look back and see him in this, it's cool. Yeah, uh, Redford, young Lucas Hedges is working on his dirt bike but receives a second warning from Ward to, for reckless cycling. Chef Max Durdarian is cooking. Durdarian. Durdarian, good. Ward sits at the breakfast table to read his latest edition of Indian Corn, the Scout magazine. But quickly, it is noticed there is an empty chair. Shikusky is missing. Ward and the campers go to Shikusky's tent to find it zipped from the inside, which was impressive. Ward, using his Swiss army knife, makes his way into the tent, but only finds a note in, in a spoiler alert, Shawshank reveal. Ward finds a hole in the tent covered by a map. Yeah, if you haven't seen Shawshank, like, I, it's, it was made in 1994. I, it's not a spoiler anymore, but that's essentially what it was. It was a hole in a tent covered by a fucking poster. Turning oh, to the campers, Ward simply states, Jiminy Cricket, he flew the coop. The police station is revealed. It is a tiny office on a small dock with a boat, a police car, and a trailer for the captain to live in. Captain Sharp, Bruce Willis, which, crazy that he's in this. Very random. Captain Sharp's fishing is interrupted by a phone call from Ward. Quote, one of my boys, one of my boys seems to have stolen a miniature canoe and some fishing tackle, 10 pounds of sun dries, two bell two bedrolls plus an air rifle and disappeared over. Shikusky's resignation letter is also read, quote, Dear Scout Master Ward, I am very sad to inform you I can no longer be involved with the khaki scouts of, of North America. The rest of the troop will probably be glad to hear this. It is not your fault. Best wishes, Sam Shikusky. Sharp immediately wants to notify Shim Sam's parents. Inside a switchboard operator office, Sharp and Ward contact Mr. Billingsley, Larry Pine, about Sam. At this point, Billingsley says he cannot invite Sam back. Sharp, Sharp is shocked and confused. Billingsley informs, Billingsley informs Sharp and Ward that Sam is an orphan and will not be coming back. 
social services will be coming to the island soon. Rough stuff. Rough stuff. <laughs> Back at Camp Ivanhoe, Ward is gathering his campers to form a search party. Any questions? Lazy Eye. What's your real job, sir? I'm a math teacher. Why? What grade? Eighth. You need PhD for that? Lazy Eye, no. But you know what? We're actually in the middle of something here, in case you didn't notice. One of our scouts is missing, and that's a crisis. Anybody else? Redford. What if he resists? Who? Shikuski. Are we allowed to use force on him? No, you're not. This is a non-violent rescue operation. Your mission is to find him, not to hurt him under any circumstances. Am I making myself understood? Good. I'm gonna change my answer, in fact. This is my real job. Scoutmaster, Troop 55. A math teacher on the side. Snoopy, the beagle, is given Sam's assent. The campers begin their search, all with weapons. Two things. One, that line of, uh, you know, just the way it's directed is hilarious because Norton literally walks off the frame. Two seconds later, he walks back in <laughs> and it's like, in. hey, this is my real job. That's changing very, my answer. That's very West. If there's, I don't know if it's him or um, uh, Noel Bombach who coined that kind of, I guess it's more West, but that, that kind of humor of like keeping a frame and someone walking out of frame and then like walking back in and it's like very awkward, quirky kind of like, I don't know, it's very... It's, it's right not, out of the Scorsese camp. And I don't know if he's ever done that, but Scorsese has a very famous quote where it's uh, movies are about what's in the frame and what's outside the frame. I've heard that quote, yeah. So that's what he's playing with, what's in and out of the frame. Right, he says what he says he needs to say, he leaves, and then he thinks about it. We don't, we don't see that. But then when he comes back and he's like, actually, I changed my mind. Like, it's it's only when he's come to that realization that we see what he's saying. Um, it's just done in a very comical way. Yeah. Also, um, the Snoopy thing. Snoopy is literally a beagle. Like, that's the kind of dog he is. So it's just yeah. funny that there's an actual dog named Snoopy in this. I, I love it. It's so good. Sharp, meanwhile, is going from house to house looking for Sam. He makes it to the Bishop house. Walt believes it would be impossible for a kid to canoe from the campsite to his house. Laura disagrees. Sharp drives away, but not too far. As Susie watches from her binoculars atop the house, she sees her mother bike to Sharp. The two share a cigarette. Very salacious. Quite a salacious moment. Later that night, Ward is back in tent, making an audio recording. Scoutmaster's log, September 2nd. First day of search party for Sam Shikusky. Morale is extremely low. In part, I suppose, because Sam is the least popular scout in the troop by a significant margin. I'm confused and I'm worried. Please let us find him tomorrow. Please don't let him fall off a cliff or drown in a goddamn lake or something. Terrible day at Camp Ivanhoe. Let's hope tomorrow's better. Just like the opening of Patton, a Coppola film, by the way, uh, extreme close-ups of Sam's uniform come into focus. Finally, we meet Sam, Jared Gilpin. He is canoeing, but disembarks into a wheat field where he meets Susie. What's with the wheat fields in movies? I'm tired of wheat fields. Since, Gladi <laughs> Since Gladiator, it, like, I, I know it's a very different movie than Gladiator, but it's enough with the wheat fields. The we wheat, hey, they look good on camera. <laughs> I, they must. Flashback to one year prior. Troop 55 is watching a production of Noe Flood inside, inside a church. 
Bored, Sam sneaks away, passing by children in animal costumes. He finds himself in a dressing room backstage. There is a gaggle of girls in bird costumes putting on their makeup. In a bold move, Sam clears his throat to, to make himself known. In a confident voice, he asks, what kind of bird are you? The girl in the dove costume begins to answer, but is quickly rebuffed. I said, what kind of bird are you? I'm a raven. Very bold. So bold. He's got moves. Kids got moves. Just as they begin to connect, an adult comes into the room to shoo away Sam. After the, after the show, Sam receives a letter from Susie telling him to write her. Back in the present, Susie and Sam are in the wheat field looking at one another. After Susie confirms that she was not followed, they move closer. Sam gives Susie flowers. He then takes out a map and they begin their venture through the island's harsh terrain. In a misty fog, the two decide to set up camp by a lake. They fish for dinner. Sam catches a turtle with the name Albert written on its shell, which I didn't, that was weird. Uh, Susie catches a fish, which Sam cooks. Sam asks if Susie's cat will want to eat the fish. Susie points to cat food she brought with her. At this point, Sam wants to create an inventory of everything Susie has brought. Her brother Lionel's record player, a record. Uh, the record was Yee Yee Girl from Paris. I don't know how to pronounce and I'm not going to attempt to pronounce the singer's name. Several books, all with female heroes from different worlds. Lefty scissors, rubber bands, extra batteries, toothbrush, and of course, her binoculars. So, in other words, she's a very impractical packer. You're bringing Same cat food, you're bringing books, you're bringing everything but essentials. You're just bringing heavy shit. You know how heavy well, books are? She's a child. Right. This is, yeah. this, is, this is all she knows, especially the binoculars. Binoculars make sense. You're going on, for, you're going on like an adventure. But you're telling me you're going to bring a record player? And a, I mean, I guess we have the luxury of iPhones nowadays. But like. You, you need the music. <clears throat> what year is this supposed to be? There's 62, no. 62, 65. There is, no, a, 65, there is a mark. 65. There is a mark, right? Yeah, at the beginning, the opening monologue, 65. That's right. Okay. Uh, Sam notes that the books are from the library. Susie says she is unsure if she will return them. At this point, Sam asks Susie if she is depressed. Susie says from time to time, then proceeds to take out another book, coping with the very troubled child. Sam begins to laugh, but Susie, who just opened up to Sam, is hurt and runs into the tent. Sam follows her, saying he is on her side. She accepts the apology. As Susie reads, Sam falls asleep with a pipe in his mouth, which I didn't know children that young could smoke, but good for them. I guess it's, well, <clears throat> like I said, in terms of the children acting like adults, I think that's more of the, that's the whole thing, you know, they, they behave in a way that, almost in, in a stereotypical kind of way, in a cliche kind of way, but back at the Bishop home, Laura is calling up with a bullhorn to Susie. The boys do not know where Susie is, but Lionel's pissed that Susie took his record player. Lionel takes out a note Susie left for him saying she'll be gone for 10 days. Laura with the bullhorn calls up to Walt. Walt, where the hell are you? Why are you cursing it? Does it concern you that your daughter has just run away from home? 
That's a loaded question. Come down and read this. While Walt is shocked that Sharper's at the house, the two load up in the police car, and they, they, they continue to search. If it was not obvious before that Sharp and Laura were having an affair, Sharp solidifies it. Sharp asks how, how Laura, not Mrs. Bishop, is holding up. <laughs> Their search does not last long. They go back to the Bishop house. Laura runs out with Susie's private letterbox saying two missing children had an intimate relationship. Walt is fixated on the nude that Sam, who does water painting, did of Susie. In several flashbacks, we see the progression of Susie and Sam's relationships and ultimately their plan to run away. The next morning in the wheat field, Get the bishop wheat field. Goddamn wheat field. <laughs> Fucking gladiator. The bishop family, Sharp, and all of Camp Ivanhoe arrive. Walt has two black eyes. He was wandering in the night, and Susie stole the batteries to the flashlight. The campers find a can of cat food. They're on the right path. Sharp officially deputizes the camp campers, and the search continues. I think Bill Murray is really funny in this movie. He has a very um, small role relatively but it's very funny he's not as as small a role but he's almost like klaus in life aquatic in that his role is much smaller than you'd expect yeah but it's very it's much a, like that because he's always there but he has a small her presence i guess right but the payoff is always worth it like with klaus it's like you could see willem defoe holding back like he wanted to do more but every time he spoke it was brilliant and in this time it's like it's way less bill murray than you think you want Every time he speaks, it's it's great. You know, it's and just. Can we can we talk about this? I, I'm going to bring it up. The ages of Bill Murray and Francis McDormand adjacent to their children's ages just seems a little oh. off to me. Of, <laughs> of course, because it's like the latter day children. It's like the later on in life kind of like, hey. Uh, it's just unexpected, but I mean, they just seem, you know, Bill Murray when making this movie was probably what in his later sixties, maybe like sixty. This is twenty. This is twenty twelve, yeah. right? So this movie is uh, it's eight years old. Good math. Good math. How old? Thank you. Thank you so much, Stephen. Uh, bully, bully for you. I'm actually going to do this right now. So he's sixty nine right now. Oh, so he was 61. Okay. I, yeah, but even so, it's like... Honestly, that's... my problem is less with her because, you know, m men have can have children until later years of their life. Like, Steve Martin just had a kid, like, two years ago. It's just um, it's but... just jarring. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's jarring to... It's always jarring to yeah. see. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Not that there's anything wrong with it. But of course it's weird because you'd think that these parents would be, I mean, the kids are supposed to be, what, 12? So you Susie's think, 12, which means that Lionel, little Lionel is like maybe, what, six years old? So you'd think that the parents would be in their, what, 30s, maybe their 40s at most? Yeah, so no, the that's fact my that, point. That's, exactly. It's nothing wrong with you, but it's jarring. It's strange. Because yeah. they just seem like old parents. They seem like my parents. They seem like old parents. They just seem like older parents, you know? Let's get back into it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, we digress. It does not take long for the campers to find and surround Susie and Sam on a cliff. All the campers have weapons. Sam takes out his BB gun. 
After some heated discussion, Redford zooms towards Sam and Susie on a dirt bike. Flashes of scissors and an arrow. That was like interesting editing too. It was literally cut to an arrow, cut to uh, scissors or vice versa. It was very quick. It was very, it was very, um, it reminded me of a lot of like Soviet cinema. Yeah. Like they show, they show you a flash of like what happened through like literally just an object and then you find out what happened after. I don't know. No, I understand what you mean. It's almost like it could be, it almost could have uh, run into like an old animated program, like almost something from. That too. I, I was thinking more Eisenstein or Vertov, but. Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking more like Looney Tunes or a cartoon or no, like, that, a, like a comic strip or something. No, that makes sense too. Flashes of scissors and an arrow. Followed by the campers fleeing the scene. Redford is bleeding. Sam and Susie look out to the dirt bike, which is now hanging from a tree next to them. Susie is holding bloody scissors. She stabbed Redford. Snoopy, unfortunately, was shot by the arrow through the neck. Which that was like brutal. That's some another, brutal stuff. Another dead dog for Wes Anderson's uh, <laughs> resume. Yeah, right. I guess it's terrible. That's why he made Isle for Dogs because he needed to like. He needed to redeem himself. He needed to redeem himself somehow for all the dogs it, he's killed. Uh, yeah, it's really like I've like we've said, especially with Ned's death in Life Aquatic. It's he. I've my observation is that he puts shocking or unexpected death in his movies for innocent characters like he just it's and it's never really drawn to ned was big because he was a character he was like a big character but like he just he'll very quickly just kill off a character even if it's just a, a dog or you know he'll yeah. very quickly just write off and here's my hot take i just think owning a dog in the 60s was different i feel like this is a very accurate portrayal of what a whole owning a dog in the 60s would be like <laughs> You know, like now, nowadays, a dog is literally like part of the family. Yeah, yeah, of course. Back in the '60s, I feel like a dog was still a dog. You know, you yeah. just you, you mourn, a, you build a little grave, and then that's it. Yeah, <laughs> it's bad. You know, yeah, yeah, life yeah. wasn't like old Yeller back then. You you had a dog one minute, and then you didn't another. It was a lot more blunt and straightforward. The campers and Ward are in Sharp's police car, heading to the pier for medical attention. Already at the pier are Mr. and Mrs. Bishop, who thought Susie had been caught. Ward tells the bishops their daughter assaulted a camper. The adults all begin to shout at one another. They're interrupted by the narrator. He says that the previous year he taught Sam about the Chipcha harvest migration route. He knows where they're going. Susie and Sam have made it to their destination. The Chipcha beach to celebrate, they scream into the ocean and then jump in. Their clothing is then seen hanging, hang drying. Susie is in her underwear with her cat as Sam paints them. A little later, Sam gifts earrings he made for Susie. They are beetles attached to fishing hooks. Very romantic. <laughs> Cut to Sam piercing Susie's ear, at, which was gross. But, <laughs> and unsanitary, not called for at all. Absolutely not. How she even like tall like I, I no because he didn't even clean that shit off. At sunset, the two are on the cliff talking about Sam's medals. The one he is most proud of is his mother's brooch, which isn't official, but Sam doesn't care. The conversation shifts into being an orphan. Susie says that she wishes she was an orphan. All the characters in her stories are. Sam stops her. 
quote, I love you, but you don't know what you're talking about. She reciprocates, saying she loves him too. A little later, they are dancing. Still in their underwear, they begin to French kiss. Sam notes that Sam is hard, but she likes it. Sam then awkwardly grabs Susie's chest. Later that night, Susie is once again reading to Sam, but this time he's awake and listening. So Very sexual. It's incredibly sexual. I had to really conceal myself, you know. <laughs> Very bold for 13-year-olds. I think that my whole take on it, because it's always, the scene is, the scene it always weirded me out watching it never, it never, it never didn't weird me out. It always made me feel uncomfortable. But like in hindsight, watching it from like a third person perspective of 12, 13 year olds is like, they've never done anything like this. So like, they just know what they think they're supposed to do. And so it's like almost awkward on purpose. And that's it's supposed that's supposed to be awkward because you can't make it easy. Otherwise, it becomes child pornography. Exactly. If they were both into it and they were acting in a way as if it were natural, it would seem uncomfortable because children. This is their that, first time with anyone. Right. They figure they figure these kind of behaviors out for themselves at a certain age. So for them to be awkward and for the audience to feel awkward, I think is part of the point. It's part of like, it's a short moment where you're like, okay, like they're filling each other up and they're French kissing, but like they're 12 years old. But that's the whole thing. Like everyone has that experience at whatever age where they're doing it for the first time and they're very awkward. I can't wait for my first time. I am looking forward to my first time. The next morning, the couple awakens to the sound of an airplane overhead, followed by a boat. Sam opens the tent to see that the search party has found them. Busted. Busted. Walt, seeing they are in their underwear, runs towards the tent. Sam tries to interfere by zipping the tent shut, but Walt lifts the tent over his head, which is a very funny moment. Defeated, Walt throws the tent and walks away. Laura grabs her daughter. In this moment, Ward hands Sam a letter from Mr. Billingsley saying he cannot come back. On the boat ride back, Walt tells his daughter, be advised, you two will never see each other again. Those were your last words. Do you understand? Susie threatens her father. Sam, below deck, is with Ward. Attempting to cheer Sam up, Ward tells him that the camp on the beach was the best he has ever seen. But Sam says that he will not be returning to the scouts. Back in the switch operator's office, Sharp and Ward receive a phone call from social services. I love that that's her character name. It's literally it's, just social, social I was going to say, she's never credited as anything else, right? No, her credit is literally social services. It's amazing. She will be coming to the island tomorrow to collect Sam and will bring him to juvenile refuge, a place where Sam will undergo electroshock therapy. <laughs> the 60s, man. Rough stuff for the 60s. Flabbergasted, Ward and Sharp initially fight back, but realize there is nothing that they can do. Back at the Bishop home, the boys are playing a board game. Walt comes down the stairs, shirtless and carrying an axe. In a deflated tone, he tells his sons, I'll be out back. I'm going to find a tree to chop down. In the bathroom, Laura is bathing Susie. Trying to empathize with her daughter, Laura says she knows how Susie feels. Susie, knowing her mother is empathizing because of her affair, says that she hates her. Laura then finds the ch child book in Susie's bag. Laura does not know what to say, but notices the earrings. Sam is staying in Sharp's trailer for the night. While Sharp cooks dinner, Sam is eloquently pontificating about how he loves Susie. Sharp gives Sam some beer and notes 
he too was once in love, but it didn't work out. <laughs> it's, uh, just this, the deadpan, the straightforward dialogue is great. Bruce Willis um, is good in this movie. I feel like this was his last good performance. It's, well, don't be disrespectful, but... Uh, uh, I won't be, because gl- he was oh. pretty good in Glass. I'll give him that. Oh, I didn't see it. <laughs> Still haven't seen it. I keep forgetting, I was just thinking Looper. I liked him in Looper, but that was, tw- that was before this, or that was... Yeah, that was 20... No, it was the same year as this, 2012. Yeah, you're right. It was his last good year. Meanwhile, at Camp Ivanhoe, Ward is preparing to make another audio recording, but distraught over Sam's fate, cannot come up with anything to say. The campers in the unsafe treehouse also have a moment of clarity. They collectively realize they have been mean to Sam for no reason. What's more, they need to help him. In the dead of night, Walt is passed out by a half-chopped down tree. Laura sneaks out on her bike. From the cellar, Susie and the campers emerge and flee. At the lighthouse, Sharp and Laura meet to end their affair. While Laura ends it, Sharp thinks it is the right thing. At Sharp's trailer, a rope drops in the chimney. Sam is rescued. As the sun rises, the kids island hop, canoeing to St. Jack Wood Island. The next morning, the day of the hurricane, Ward awakes at Camp Ivanhoe to discover that his entire troop has vanished. He sends word to Commander Pierce, Harvey Keitel. Is this, uh, his, this is his first appearance, right? Yep. Okay. He sends word to Commander Pierce, Harvey Keitel, at Fort Lebanon. Little does he know that the troop is on the campsite seeking out Cousin Ben, Jason Schwartzman. Cousin Ben will help get Sam to a cold water crabber ship. In return, he gives he is given $76 in nickels, but Sam will not go if his wife, Susie, cannot go. Ben offers to officiate the wedding, which will not be legally binding. After a quick ceremony, Ben, Sam, and Susie load, load onto a sailboat. The boat departs the dock, but quickly returns as Susie forgot her binoculars. Sam runs to the chapel to get the binoculars, but Redford stole them. Sam and Redford confront one another, which alerts Fort Lebanon's campers to Sam's presence. As the storm picks up, Sam is being chased. As he prepares to make his final stand, Sam is struck by lightning, which is hilarious. It's outrageous. Every time it's outrageous. Somehow he survives, and the camp Ivanhoe crew makes their escape. The stories all converge. Pierce alerts Sharp that Susie is with Sam. Sharp quickly redirects social services plane to the correct island and heads out. Ward is on his way to Fort Lebanon by boat. The bishops are preparing to leave. To raise the tension even higher, the dam breaks. Like a literal dam on an island breaks. I don't I feel like I should make that clear. Tough stuff. <laughs> Tough stuff. Fort Lebanon's campers in their yellow poncho stand at attention. Ward runs into the camp and is is shocked when Pierce tells him the kids have escaped. Pierce strips Ward of his command, ripping off his patches. The troop under Pierce's command is ready to go after Pierce gets his medication. As Pierce goes into the cabin, the ground beneath floods and fireworks begin to go off, and the cabin is ablaze. Ward takes action, jumping over the new boat and saving Pierce. Now in command, Ward leads the campers to Pierce on his back. It's pretty crazy stuff. Some wicked wild stuff, man. Wicked wild stuff, man. 
the uh, ending uh, is a little reminiscent of uh, Christopher Nolan's Insomnia. You got this cabin, you got this sort of rushing water, and you've got this meeting of the this clash between two parties. Well, everything all uh, comes together, and except one of them doesn't fall into the water for uh, a demise. Uh, but I'll, I'll be honest, I don't see it, but I'm happy you do. I'm really just spitballing. I have the movie playing here. So there's the, the cabin over the rushing waters. <laughs> I'm trying to make connections, man. Come on now, bear with me. Bear down for bear down, connections. Bear down for midterms. Thank the characters you. all meet at St. Jack's Church, which, like last year, has the noise flute set in the background. The church is full of refugees from the flooded island as well. Sharp notices Sam is in a costume from his raccoon cap. With lightning and thunder behind her, social services walks into the church. Oh, that's what very ap- apropos for someone who wants to induce electroshock. Th- <laughs> she literally walks in with the lightning behind her. It's amazing. The, uh, the visual imagery here is incredible. Sharp and Ward confront social services, once again insisting electroshock therapy is too far. The bishops, still scared for their daughter, interrupt the conversation. Social services says they must be the parents of the stabber. The bishops take that as slander. Pierce takes out a few forms about to litigate the stabbing issue. Ward insists now is not the time. Thunder it's and really lightning. funny. Like, <laughs> it escal- you know, like literally, oh, you must be the parents of the stabbers. We object to that. And Harvey Keitel is there just like, yeah, I have the paperwork. Let's go over it's, the case right now. It's, it's like, now is not the time. It's very comical. He doesn't, I feel like um, Anderson's humor isn't as straightforward in terms of like slapstick or like going for the direct reference, but like this is a very, um, in the forefront, it's very comedic, very uh, straightforward in the comedy. It's good. Um, Thunder and lightning kill the power, but put attention to Sharp, who is now holding a weapon. Commanding the room, Sharp says, he is not getting shock therapy. Ever helpful Redford points to the kids on the second floor in animal costumes. Yeah, fuck the that power- kid. That's <laughs> so disrespectful. The power to the church goes out. Sam and Susie make their way to the roof. The outside is light, stark blue. Sam and Susie climb their way to the bell tower. Sharp pursues them. Seeing this, Susie says they may need to jump. They are ready and willing to die. Sharp climbing is getting into legal battle with social services. The bishops who are lawyers help Sharp's case. About to jump, Sam and Susie kiss once more. Sam still has electricity in him. Before they jump, Sharp stops them. He offers to adopt Sam. Sam agrees to this, but the bellow tower is struck by lightning. Somehow, they survive. Like monkeys in a barrel, Sharp is holding Sam, who is holding Susie. Yeah, they were literally monkeys in a barrel there. It's, it's, it's great. It's very, uh, very comical. The next day, the narrator explains just how destructive the storm was. As he explains, the damage is also shown. It was actually like, I don't mean to make light of it, but like some of the scenery was like very reminiscent of like Hurricane Sandy. Like behind him was like a literally a flooded uh, basketball court. There's like a toppled chapel. Sometime later, back at the Bishop household, Susie is the in the annex with her brothers. As we pan backwards, it is revealed that Sam is painting. Sam is, in the, Sam is in a police uniform rather than his scout's clothing. Laura calls up to her kids for dinner. 
Sam climbs out the window, whispering, quote, see you tomorrow. Waiting for him below it is Sharp. Susie watches from her binoculars as Sam loads into Sharp's car. The painting is revealed. It is of the beach campsite that Sam and Susie made. The painting transitions into the set, which fades to black. The end. So, uh, Josh, tell me, how long do you think Susie and Sam last? Maybe a couple up, weeks. Do they end up getting married? Uh, it was the 60s, so probably. That was my method of thinking, too. If the this... fact that, like, what's it called? Their parents stayed together. Susie's parents stayed together. But it's also a different generation. You know, they're about to enter the hippie era, then, like... Um, something no. tells me that they don't stay together very long. Susie gets caught into the drug scene, and... Uh, I don't know. It's, I, um... For, for it my, becomes um, a Forrest Gump situation. It's a very... Um... It's a very uh, strange, yeah, exactly. It's a fairy tale because I feel like um, it's very, it's sad for the day that we live in, but I feel like the idea of um, like fantastical romances or the idea of like a, a story worthy uh, affair, you know what I mean? It's, so, it's something of the past. I feel today is just like we're so open-minded and free thinking and for you know a lot of it for good cause but it's like i just feel like that relationship wouldn't translate to modern day uh so tell me josh what are your final thoughts on this film so um i guess i uh, my 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 instinct thoughts are that this isn't my favorite of wes anderson's movies but it's also one that i respect more than a lot of others because it's one of his only, uh, his only movie I think that primarily features children as the main characters. Um, um, you can argue Rushmore, but well, Rushmore, you'd have to argue. For me, the Rushmore dynamic is between Jason Schwartzman and Bill Murray. Like that's for me, that's the core relationship. You know, it's the, it's between yes, it's about the woman in between them, but it's really about the two of them. Whereas this is like this is the children in the forefront and all the. Uh, the adults taking the back burner. Well, that's why so, I said you can argue Rushmore, but you'd have to argue. I, I just did, you know, so it's... <laughs> no, but you argued in the opposition, not with the... Well, it's, this is the, I mean, this is, it's children, the children in general. Are well, I primary. get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go it's on just, with your final thoughts. I didn't mean it's to It's really, I'll, I'll go fuck myself. It's fine. You know, it's fine. <laughs> the thing is, this is, it's just, I'm so used to seeing the normal Wes Anderson cast and the quirky adults. And this is the first movie he worked on, uh, Wes Anderson worked on without Owen Wilson. Um, it's weird not seeing like the whole gang, but seeing a huge ensemble cast, but really just seeing the kids in the forefront and seeing um, the whole, I, I really feel like this was his version of doing a coming of age film in every sense, uh, making it feel nostalgic in setting it in a past era and making it about falling in love, but also doing it from a child's perspective. Um, there's something incredibly special about this movie. It's in something that I, it's the kind of movie that I hope that other kids would watch. Like it's, it's the kind of movie I hope that other, like older kids would watch or young teens and connect with it in the way that like we connected with certain coming of age films when we were younger. Um, 
in the sense that like uh, something like Stand By Me, which was going to be my pick of the week, and it's spoiler, it's not going to be, but it's something like the idea that you're watching children go through adult situations and children transform and watching children grow up. But it's a, it's a movie that you enjoy as a child that you can enjoy as an adult. Um, in a sense, he's never really made another movie like this. So it's like, just like he, <clears throat> we had said with Fantastic Mr. Fox, until he had done Isle of Dogs, it's like, this is something very new for him. You know, um, last week we talked about he worked the stop motion animation. This week it's, he's worked, he's worked primarily with children. This is a movie, I mean, uh, I think we've been saying it the last couple of weeks. It's just like, even though I may not love this movie, this movie may not be on my the top of my list. I I can't deny how um, how much work went into it. The production value, like we said, the colors, the qual, uh, the costumes, the location, um, and it's funny because watching this in the heat of August, as of this recording, um, it really rings true to like um, uh, bringing up the feeling of summer. Um, it feels um, like a dark days of summer kind of movie. Like it really feels like you feel kind of warm just watching it. And I don't know if that's just because of, of the nostalgia, but it's <laughs> the warm fuzzy feeling, so to speak. But just literally because of how much of a summer movie it feels like. It feels like it's just it's uh, oh, captures an era and a spirit in a very special way. Um, I it's it's a very sweet movie. It's very um, you know. I can't deny how down to earth it is and it's in its, in its innocence. Um, in a sense, it's maybe why it doesn't resonate with me. I'm always looking for the darker, more <laughs> unnecessary uh, elements. Um, but um, it, as far as capturing the inner child, for lack of better words, um, the movie gets its job done. And for that, I think it's one of his most respectable movies, even if it's not one of my favorite. All right. Yes. Uh, but please tell us, Tell us your final thoughts. Building off of what you said, uh, the movie is very charming. That's the word I would use to like surmise to, to kind of use you know, what you were saying. It is very charming, but it's more than that. I feel like it's very, I don't know. I feel like it's very raw and just the emotions are on the forefront. This is a very character driven story. It's still it's very character driven, but it's still very plotty, which is something that Wes Anderson is able to do very well. That someone like I'm sorry but to go back, but Nolan sometimes has extreme difficulty doing that. He puts plot first and character second. Um, but something I will I'm not gonna ta like continue on what you were saying. Yes, this movie has a special place for kids and uh and uh, young adults growing up i think it's important for them to watch it's in that pantheon of like coming of age stories but i also feel like this is a very adult movie too because in reality what it is is it's there's a whole story of the children yes but the subplot is really about the adults and can the adults confronting their own cynicism about how the world is operating, you know? The bishops are in a loveless marriage. Sharp is having an affair, feels guilty about it, and he's just like depressed as shit. Uh, these three adults are going through some heavy stuff and they're confronted by this young, innocent love that they wanna smack down, 
but they learn that like why should they be the ones to smack it down like it's something they have to overcome their own cynicism to let their children just be happy even if the happiness was a little too uh a little too overzealous on that beach but <laughs> but hey because <laughs> uh you know sam knows how to pitch a tent you know <laughs> in, in more ways than one in more ways than one but hey bill murray knows how to fucking throw that tent away uh, so i guess uh those are my final thoughts yeah i mean it's like really... you it's, so i just want to say one more thing like Sorry. you it's probably not in my it's not my favorite of his movies but it i will contend that still that it is a huge turning point in his career and it's it un- is, it's undeniable and yes there was a big and great cast for fantastic mr fox but this is his truly like first everyone is a star cast he gets so many this is the bit this is the uh the preface the this is the it's the, pre, it's the, pre, it's the preface yes i mean the pre the preface to grand budapest because this is like it's like wow like there are so many people in this how can he outdo himself and then it's like you look at Grand Budapest, you're like, wow, he. And then he does himself again with uh, Isle for Dogs. And then you look Isle at the trailer. And then you look at the trailer for French, you know, for Dispatch. French Dispatch. You're like, holy shit, he's got the whole gang here. It's like I love it. I just I, I enjoy seeing that he's just continuing to like. I just imagine him phoning up his old friends, and I just imagine him getting Jeff Goldblum and whoever, and almost of them like, oh, like hey, I'm doing another one, like. Just yep. let me know when you're ready. <laughs> I feel like Jeff Goldblum could have been in this movie. I just Absolutely. Don't know Absolutely. Uh, so, you ready to give your pick of the week? Yeah. Which we know is not uh, what movie Sta- you- is well, not what, Stand By Me. It was going to be Stand By Me. So, for my pick of the week, I'm going with uh, David Wayne's 2001 comedy hit, Wet Hot American Summer. <laughs> oh, are you kidding me? No. I have, I'm not kidding you. That was my pick of the week, too. No! That's literally what I was going to go with. Dude, I was watching watching clips of this, and I was like, dude, I feel like this is the most summer campy kind of, like, not campy in that sense, but, like, camp really. Well, campy in that sense, too. That's but why I'm, it's so I'm watching this, and I'm like, this is a little absurd, but whatever. I'm like, what can I pick that's relevant to this? And I went with Wet Hot American Summer, because re- recently, Robin and I, this last week, actually about a week and a half, we binge-watched the Wet Hot American Summer Netflix series, First Day at Camp, which so is good. 10 episodes, and then watched the movie, and then watched the second series 10, uh, 10 years later, and it's hilarious. How Both irreverent. amazing. All, How, all of them are amazing. I, it's funny that we've never really talked about it because it's so irreverent, um, and it's just hilarious because watching this Moonrise Kingdom, I'm like, all right, this is like a summer, like I said, it's a summer feeling kind of camp movie, and then like going to Wet Hot American Summer, I'm like, I can't, believe how absurd this is like and you want to talk about all-star cast before. oh my and god this show this movie had an all-star cast before like it I even mean, knew it was an bradley all-star cast. cooper was not a person when this movie came out this was bradley cooper's first job out of college he missed his college graduation <sighs> because it it interfered with the first day of shooting for Worth this it. movie he's he's honestly incredible i mean i i love bradley cooper in dramas but like he started out as a comedian and this and that movie shows why you know he's everything about it's incredible and then the series i mean i'm not gonna go deep in the netflix series because it's i'm talking about the movie but 
it's just it builds on it. It builds on the absurdity and Mitch as the can of vegetables. And, oh my god! And, H. and Chris Mahoney as the chef. You know what I mean? Who and it's just so every, funny. The characters are so well realized, and it's so the humor is so absurd, and it's just I don't know. It's if it's just so in your face that it captures that summer outrageous slapstick kind of humor but like it makes me laugh yeah it's ridiculous and absurd and outrageous but like that's the whole point you know what I molly mean? shannon literally having like a weird relationship with her art students it's like, oh it's amazing it's and i love stuff. that i love that she just keeps uh, breaking up with the former you know whatever boyfriend slash uh fiance just to be with someone else and it's just she can't she's so codependent she can't hold it together it's just yeah I guess uh, I don't have to give a pick of the week because this was my pick of the week. I mean, if so, you have anything, you can add anything else you want to say, man. We were just both chiming in, but I guess strange. I could give another movie just off the top of my head for my pick of the week. I'll go with the movie that, well, let's go with last year's Jojo Rabbit because Jojo Rabbit, when the trailer came out, I remember everyone was like, this looks like a Moonrise Kingdom ripoff. Um, yeah. You could definitely tell uh taika loves this movie because he did i won't say he stole but he definitely um it's direct it there's an homage me. that is direct up from the color scheme and the way that the camp operates yeah but was it my was that my favorite movie of last year no but it is a very heartwarming and important story about anti-racism which is needed more, uh, now more than ever uh who would have thought a movie about an imaginary Hitler would be as good as it was? That movie is heartwarming, heart crushing. There's a moment in that movie where you just literally takes your breath away because you're just like, yeah, Josh just did a, <laughs> Josh knows exactly what I'm talking about. There's a moment that you're just like, holy shit. Uh, yeah, so because this was not my pick of the week originally i don't have much eloquent things to okay. say about it so it's okay well, the world needs a little love you can give your love for jojo rabbit i'm glad you felt the way you did yeah about it. you it's could wonderful. dance to some david bowie and have some fun um, all right everyone so this has been uh our coverage of moonrise kingdom next week we will continue our wes anderson binge with the grand budapest hotel and grand oh, it is and grand it is spoiler it alert is. it is pretty grand yeah miss your gustav oh good night america as always you could follow me on instagram at mr Filmart. and as uh, always you can find steve at mr Filmart, and we'll have that goddamn page up one day <laughs> that's the spirit that's the spirit we'll see you all next time oh.